This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everybody, this is Larry the Cable Guy. Check this out. So I'm in my truck driving with my buddy, and we was heading up to the men's warehouse to fart in the suits, and he's listening to his phone. I said, that sounds like Hermie Sadler. He said, it is Hermie Sadler. He's got a podcast called Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I said, Sadler and the Senator? He said, yeah, that's his good buddy, Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley. I said, well, what in the world? He didn't know this. I said, did you know that Hermie Sadler was voted one of the 50 best-looking drivers in NASCAR? He said, I did not know that. I said, because it ain't true. <laughs> you never know, though. He never takes off his helmet. But I know one thing. This show, Leaning Right, Turning Left, is good. So pull up a chair right there by your phone, get yourself a cold beer, and give a listen right here to this week's episode of Leaning Right, Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I'll tell you what, I bet Michael Waltrip's even listening. He's always wanted to do something like that. Oh, Sadler, got another one over on Waltrip. Get her done! I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm leaning right. And I'm former NASCAR driver and Fox Sports analyst Hermie Sadler. And I'm turning left. This is Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. And as always, we are powered by Pacematic. Hi, Herm. Senator, how are you? I've had better days in the General <laughs> Assembly. Uh, I did not wear my asbestos underwear, so I can still see the smoke coming out of my rear end. This is the. It was a bad day for this me. This is about the time of the session when you're supposed to be getting things done. Right, and and sometimes that happens. But right now, uh, I'm getting things done. My bills are done. Like they're not coming back. <laughs> That's all that's happening right now. So. I had a really good streak. I started out hot, man. I couldn't get anything fail. They were all passing out of committees. And then uh, the dumpster fire, as you said, uh, has started to occur, and they're killing my bills left and right. Well, on the second half of the show, I want to talk to you a little bit about it, because I know that some of the bills you are carrying, some of which I'm involved in, like something to help special needs kids yes. in the Commonwealth of Virginia, is no way that that could be getting pushback in you, the general assembly you would be surprised and it's not pushback from the general assembly members but we'll talk about this if you want because I, I i guess this is my first foray into the special needs community yeah and you've got pushback from the teachers in the public school system mm -hmm. and then the parents yeah that in some cases they, not all don't want any accountability no for lack of progress or collaboration right. which is concerning that's right and and that's something i think is serious we're trying to do something that'll actually have some interaction some homogeny between parents and the teachers to make sure that it's consistent from what's being taught inside the school uh, to be, when it goes home, empowering parents uh, with training and certifications in behavioral sciences that help and that's consistent with what's going on in schools. And it, it, it's very apparent to me that they, they, they have a hard time working together. Let's hope that changes. Well, we're going to talk about that in the second half of the show, but we've talked so much politics and lawsuits and things that we're fighting for uh, on the last three or four shows tonight, we wanted to kick off the show. You know, we did announce kind of briefly towards the end of last week's show that we put out a press release to announce 
the new stable of drivers for Sadler Stanley Racing in 2024. And we talked about Bobby Labonte, the Hall of Famer that's coming back on a limited schedule uh, with Sadler Stanley Racing, including running the NASCAR Wheel and Modified Tour races. And we talked about Jonathan Cash, who ran a handful of races for us over the last two years, getting a full-time opportunity. And tonight, our guest is... And that is a real sea change. Sure it is. From where we were before. Sure it is. And But tonight, our... But this is this is what we're about to do right now, and who we're going to talk to, is part of your vision from the very beginning when we developed this race team and we started doing what we were doing. Not just for the purposes of the race team overall, but what you wanted to do in creating opportunities for up-and-coming drivers, for the guys who are going to be the next generation of stars. We're going to create our own stars. And, and I, I was excited about that. Yeah. I really was. And so I think, I think what you got here going on tonight, who we're going to talk to tonight is pretty exciting. What you're doing is pretty exciting. Uh, you made it clear that you consulted with me on every move that you made. I mean, got in writing. you're the CEO. I'm just, yeah. I'm just the treasurer or no, the secretary yep. in the uh, organization that is Sadler Stanley racing. So you make all those decisions because you have all the experience. And director of hospitality. Don't forget that. You are the director of hospitality. No, hospi- you. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a minute, that's my job. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I know how to bring the party yeah. to the racetrack, right. and especially for our sponsors and our fans, and to make sure that you know everybody's getting interested. I'll, I can even talk to you about that a little bit. I've gotten people that have come and visited with me in my office, very excited about what's coming up, even at South Boston, March 23rd, 24th weekend, mm-hmm. my wife's birthday weekend. So. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can talk all about that, but we have got that next generation star. We've got that decision that you made that I think is really going to transform Sadler Stanley Racing into what you wanted it to be from the very beginning. And he's going to lead us into the next generation of victories in open wheel modified racing. Our first guest is Luke Baldwin. Luke, you know, you and I have, we got to see each other last week. Wait, do we have a second guest? No. You said first guest. Well, we're, we're, we're special too. Oh, okay. All right. I just didn't know if you were loading up tonight. Our guest tonight is is Luke Baldwin. Luke will be driving full-time for Sadler Stanley Racing in uh, 2024. I got a chance to come see you last week. We did a little kind of a kickoff um, event down at PSR Products to kick off the 2024 season. But you've had two or three weeks now, Luke, to kind of process and and let it sink in that you're getting a full-time opportunity in tour type modifieds for Sadler Stanley Racing. So, how have the last couple of weeks been? How have you started to prepare yourself uh, for the upcoming season? And after that, give us uh, Senator Stanley and I and our viewers an update on the test session that you guys had earlier this week. Uh, to be honest with you, it still doesn't really feel real. You know, like like the past two three years, I've been watching the Smart Tour going to races with my dad and spotting for Ryan last year and and. I always kind of imagined I'd be running the tour at some point, but I didn't think it'd come this soon. So, and it and it all kind of caught me by surprise. Like, it, like my dad just dropped the ball on me, and I was like, "All right, well." So these past three weeks, four weeks, I've had I've had a lot of time to prepare. Um, I watched a lot of video. I've probably gone through almost every race of the Smart Tour series or season last year, and. And almost every race at the tracks I can find that I don't know much about. And, uh, yeah, just super excited for this, you know, opportunity. I'm really thankful for you guys to uh, put me in this position and really excited to get it done. And um, uh, the test session a couple of days ago went great. You know, we, we just went on some old tires to try to 
get me into the feel of things and uh so i can see how it all works and i feel like we got up to speed pretty fast for what we had like i, I was talking to neil crew chief and i asked him i'm like what like what do you think like how fast do you think bobby would go if he got in this same car with these this same tires right now and he he told me he honestly didn't know if he would go much faster so i think it went really well we showed great speed and especially how much I learned throughout the day, how much better the little things like tire temps, brake temps, uh, feedback got towards the end of the day. Uh, it's given me a lot of confidence for this season. I think we'll have a great year. Now, now, Luke, of course, you come from racing royalty. Your, your dad, Tommy Baldwin, uh, a hero of mine. I mean, it's somebody I admire greatly. Great success in NASCAR. You're young. How old are you now? What, 16? 17. Oh, pardon me. I know that make, that makes a big difference. Uh, you know, when I was 16, I, I used to say 16 and a half, 16 and three quarter. Now you're 17 years old. You're going to be running with some old salty guys. You're going to be running with some, some new guys. What was your start in racing? I mean, obviously, you know, you're around racing 24 seven, probably since you had a diaper on, but what got you into racing? Because I know like with, with Hermes kids, they didn't get into racing and Elliot's uh, boy, Wyatt, is now getting into. We're racing. trying to get him into karting, yeah. And before it was baseball and, yeah, and other sports, yeah, yeah. And now he's kind of getting into it. But it, it seems to be genetic in the blood. What got you started? What made you say, as a young man, this is what I want to do? Well, to be honest with you, growing up, like, like I wanted to race, but I didn't know like it was possible for me to get into it at a young age. I didn't know much about it, and I feel like my my parents, mostly my mom, kind of instilled it that I wouldn't be getting in a race car when I was young. So. Uh, I kind of lost that hope after about elementary school or so. I, I got into school sports like basketball, football. And then my eighth grade year, my brother got in a legend car, which seemed like out of nowhere. And I was like, man, that's so cool. Like, I want to do that. So then I started going to the races, slowly getting in, getting more into it. I got iRacing, which has played a huge role in my in, uh what got me into it. Started playing iRacing 24-7 started going to the shop traveling and uh just kept begging and finally they got me a legend car and cracked and i haven't looked back since and i i didn't get in the legend car until 2022 so i ran about a half season in those then this past year was my first full season so after your first day at the racetrack i know you're looking forward to getting back on track again i know you guys are going to try to get down to florence to test prior to the first race but did anything I know I, I try to look back myself. I remember the first late model stock car I ever drove. We rented a car from stock car products, Emmanuel Savakis, and I went and tested South Boston, and it was so different. I had done karting prior to that, but it was just so different, a full-bodied stock car. you know. And I remember the first time I drove a Bush Grand National car. It was at Orange County Speedway. It was my uncle Bud Elliott's car. I got in and got to drive that. That was even more power and smaller tires and less grip and all that. And I know you've driven a different style of modified, but this was your first laps in a tour type car with this kind of motor, this kind of tire. Did, did anything surprise you or catch you off guard? Or what uh, what, uh, what What was your take after your first couple laps on the track, other than after you got that big grin off your face from feeling all that power? Um, Nothing really too crazy caught me by surprise because i've been around it for a while I, like i said i racing it's like it's not too far off obviously it's not exact and it doesn't have the real feel 
But I've talked to a lot of people, uh, especially Carson Lofton. You know, he came from the crate to the tour. He, I had a, long, a few com- long conversations with him about the differences. And, and nothing really caught me by surprise too much. But obviously the power is the big thing. So, like, first few laps, I'm like, like it's more than I expected. And I, it might help or it might be somewhat because of the tire. We didn't have great tires on, so there was a lot of wheel spin and, and all that, not much grip. But it just that, – that would be the only thing that really caught me by surprise. And I think one of the main things I'll have to get used to is the driving style between the crate and the tour mod. And, uh, like and look, just, just, for, just for those people yeah, listening, what is, what is the difference between a crate mod and a tour mod, which you've raced prior and which you're getting ready to race for us in 2024? It's really just – the power in the tire, like m- most everything else is the same. You might have a little bit more advanced, like setup options in the tour mod than we would put in the crate mod. But we, ha- we run on a 10 inch, 10 inch tire and a 602 crate engine in the crate modified, which about 350 horsepower or so moving up to a tour modified with the 15 inch tire and six, 650 horsepower almost. Yeah. So it's a big difference just in those two things. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> what, is, what has your dad told you so far? I know, you know, I've I've known and worked with your dad off and on uh, through the years. And the first couple conversations uh, I had with Tommy, I'm, I'm thinking kind of like what you're saying he told you. I don't think he thought I was being serious to begin with. And we started having conversations. And, and then he really started to get engaged because there's nothing – of all the cool things I've gotten to do in my life is, and I think Senator Stanley would concur watching your kids get opportunities and have success from, you know, my daughter playing softball or my older daughter being a NCAA division one cheerleader. Senator Stanley is talking about his son, you know, making his first basket in a you know, rec league basketball game. When you watch your kids get opportunities and have success it by far, trumps anything that I ever had an opportunity to do. So I knew pretty early on from talking to Tommy after we, when we really started getting serious about these conversations, you know, he's been really engaged with me on what he can bring to the table to try to help. But what, what have y'all's conversations been like so far? What kind of advice has he given you? Because there is a, a fine line between when you come in as a rookie and I remember my rookie year, you, you want to win and you also want to finish races and you've got to pick and choose your moments to really be aggressive and pick and choose your moments when, if you've got a seventh place car, finish seventh. So what has your dad been able to tell you or what advice has he given you so far? Honestly, he, he likes to let me try to figure some things out on my own, especially driving wise. Uh, he doesn't really tell me much before getting into it. Once I get into it, start working some things out myself. He'll, he'll start giving me little tips and tricks and how to be better. But mainly it's off the track things like ha- how to handle my emotions, how to stay calm when, when your dad it, is telling you how to handle emotions. <laughs> stay believe, calm. Believe what? It or not, you know, it, it, it's Tommy Ball. You have another dad we don't know about? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh, but that's a. Yeah. Well, it, see, I see, mean, when you it, get older, you it's get good older, to be emotional. Wiser, it, yeah. it is good it is. to be emotional. And, and listen, listen, the, right Luke, uh, the, the thing you're going to find is the two of us are very emotional people, very passionate people. So you're in the right stable <laughs> and, uh, and we're probably going to be no help when it comes to tempering your emotions or your passions. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, growing up, like I've always had, I've been super competitive and passionate about anything I do. So I've, I have, I have let the, my emotions get the best of me here and there. And he's trying to bring that down a little bit, which I agree wholeheartedly with almost everything he's telling me. And I do think it is something I need to be better at, but I also don't think it's something too crazy. It's just little things I need to clean up. But that's honestly the main thing, believe it or not. He knows that I might be like him, and he doesn't want to see that. So, um, <laughs> Like father, like so, son, right? Oh, of course, and grandpa. It's, yeah, it's all of, of us. But, yeah, that, that's probably the main thing he's instilled in me since this whole opportunity came up. You know, one of the – to be a successful race team, it, it is a business. You know, Bill and I talk a lot of – Bill's law firm is a small business. My company is a small business. Our race team, the way I view it, is a small business. And the only way to have maximum success is to have everybody on the team pulling the same way and and being on the same page and and you know, backing each other up. And you know, you may or may not know this, but the first half of last year for us, Saddler Stanley Racing. I'll just put it like it is. It was borderline disastrous for us on what we were expecting versus what we were getting based on the, the money that Bill and I put into the team and the finances and the people. And we should have been getting better results than we were getting, but worse than the lack of results was lack of accountability. And so, you know, we went down and kind of, a little past halfway of the season last year and had a reset with everybody and said, Hey, this is a business. You have a business. I have a business. You know, we all do better when the team has success. And I bring that up to say, when I started talking to Senator Stanley and to your dad about this opportunity for you, because there are a lot of unknowns, but one person that really stood up and was excited about the opportunity is Neil Cantor, who's going to be the crew chief on your car. Tell our listeners a little bit, because he has, I mean, really and truly, when I started talking to Neil, he like bubbled up like he was getting ready to start crying because he has a lot of respect for your family, for your dad, for your grandfather, and you, you guys have a family history that probably very few, if any people outside of your family, knows about, and that brings with it a determination and a um, you know, a loyalty that Neil has to you and your family that I think will pay dividends on the track. So what do you know about Neil and your history with him? Yeah, so Neil Neil grew up on Long Island with uh, uh, right near uh, my dad's whole side of the family. He grew up working with my grandpa and his automotive shop and on his race cars and going to the track with him. So it's, it's kind of a full circle moment. Uh, him or me getting to grow up working with him. Like my first legend car race and few legend car races were with him helping out. So it's, I, I think I've grown a lot since then. So he's really excited to, you know, get with, get to work with like, I don't want to say a new me, but a, a more experienced self. But yeah, like I said, it's just a full circle moment. It's going to be really cool to work with him. His brother still works at my dad's automotive shop up in Long Island. So, our families have a lot of history and I'm glad we can reconnect. Yeah. And that's, that's going to be great. Especially when you know who you're dealing with that, that builds a bond, which is important as we see in racing, you know, but, but also te- you're, you're 17 years old. 
you're getting a great opportunity with two of the greatest race car owners <laughs> ever to ever come to, to, to the modified world. Um, but right now the honeymoon is still going on, Bill. So we can say all these nice things, but we've had first time he doesn't get a good finish. <laughs> Bill, Acom, what happened? <laughs> well, no, and, and you're going to learn if, if you don't do well, Hermie's going to have a 24 hour rule. Where he, he doesn't want to talk to anybody, including me. And, and I'm like a little dog nipping in his heels. Come on, come on. What are we doing? What are we doing? And he, you know, I'm I've got, I do, that. I do have a 24 hour yeah. uh, period that, that cool down, period. cool down period, because I'm not going to say or do anything, especially like when Bill wants to call me in the first five minutes after <laughs> our car has been crashed or a motor has blown, or we get a, a, a oh. dick call by an official, yeah, yeah, put us in the, the rear. We or, threw the middle finger to, uh, you know, to the race uh, owner, yeah. uh, Chris Williams. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, so when you're, when you're thinking about 17 years old, this is a great opportunity. Obviously, I think, Luke, you're thinking about racing as a career. Is that correct? Yes, 100%. Okay. And, and so I'm thinking that you're not going to stay tour-type mo tour modifieds for the rest of your lives. You're looking at maybe thinking of getting into trucks, Xfinity, Cup, right? Of course. And one of the best things about this young man that we have brought on is he has a superior dome. His hair is like no other, and and not as good that. as yours, though, Bill. No, 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 no. And this is fifty-six-year-old hair. Uh, but Luke, look, look never try to insinuate or tell I mean, anybody your hair looks better the, than the, Bill Stanley's. The proof is in the poof for this guy. Yeah. Don't screw with the do, mm -hmm. and that's and that's why. Like, but but for a young guy like you with this kind of opportunity, my son is becoming addicted to i racing. He's eleven, uh, twelve actually. Um, you know what kind of dedication have you made? to saying, this is the career. I mean, you're 17 saying, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. What kind of advice do you have for young people that may want to come up and do this? This is a, this is a brutal sport. It's a blood sport. It is hard to get into. You have to be the 1% that gets to that next level. And it's not going to be just because your name or, 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 your, or your family line and, and that's your Tommy Baldwin son. It's going to be based on your abilities, talents, ability to regulate your emotions. What advice do you have for those young people that say, Luke Baldwin is somebody I want to become. I want to have those opportunities just like you do. Uh, I'd say just never be afraid to reach out. Um, like there's a lot of people that you could reach out to that would help you get started. Uh, you got to surround yourself with the right people. Obviously, I'm lucky I have I have a lot of connections through my family. But um, yeah, I'm really just don't be scared of any, you know, trying to force yourself into an opportunity. Like I've a few races I've ran, I wasn't supposed to run and I, and I found a way to make it happen. And honest. And another thing is like you said, I racing like that is what shaped my driving style and what taught me all the basics on how to drive a race car. And, um, another thing, another thing would be if you have the ability or a way to do it, be in the shop and learn what is on the race car, what, what, what goes into it all and and that's another thing that's helped me is like i I look up to guys like ryan priest who he works on all of his own stuff josh barry uh i i just i would love to know everything that's going on i want to get out of the car know what adjustments are being made so i know what it feels like no and and all that so that that, that about does it so so luke another question i have it based as a father uh, who has a has a young man who wants to try, and you're there. How do you balance being a teenager, being in school, getting your studies done, 
and then pursue your dream, a dream that usually is reserved for when you're 18, 19, 20. You're at that point where, what, you're a senior in high school now or junior? Senior. Okay. So you've got, you've got homecoming, you've got prom, you've got, you've got schools, you've got studies, you've got SATs, you've got all this stuff you've got to think about. How do you make that, how do you make that work? What's the balance you strike? Uh, honestly, it's, you know, if I'm going to be really honest, I've kind of taken school the easy way my whole life. Like I haven't, it hasn't been my focus all throughout, you know, all the grades and especially since racing started, racing has been my main focus. You know, I didn't, I've never been to a homecoming or a prom or anything like that. Of course, I still hang out with my friends on the weekends of where I'm not busy, but I just, racing's my main focus. Almost everything that has to do with school that I miss is because I'm at the racetrack. I'm not, I'm not afraid to miss like all the high school fun or, or the experience or whatever you call it, because, you know, I, I want to make this racing thing work. I, I don't want to miss the opportunities I can get just be, by being at the track or being at the shop for one day or weekend. So yeah, I just got to remain focused on. So wait, so wait, so wait, even girls. You just say, look, racing first. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll I mean, circle back here in a minute. But I mean, you, yeah, you are I mean, so you singularly focused that you're saying, man, listen, this is my destiny. I'm going for it. Yeah, I got to tell them. Like, like, I've got, I've got more important things on the docket. But if the right one comes by, I'm, I'm not looking the other way. That's for sure. But, <laughs> you know, I, racing, racing still remains the, the main focus. And if any, if any girl or even friend is trying to steer me the other way, I'll, I'll kick them to the curb with no hesitation. Mm. But. But yeah, you're speaking. You're speaking to your two owners. Um, we like. Well, we look, like we, that. I we wanted like to bring up. We've you bring up girls. A lot of people on this show may or may not know. We talked about you and your dad and the crew chief and all this that, and the other. But I've known your mom longer than I have your dad. She uh, was originally from up this way and is a former uh, Miss Winston. What, what years was she? That do you remember? Early nineties, early to mid nineties. Yeah, she. Uh, I met her when I first started driving in the Bush Grand National Series in the fall of nineteen ninety two, uh, up uh, in around Don Beverly Racing and some of the guys at the shop. And so she has been around racing and has seen, you know, seen it all from you know Tommy's perspective as an owner and crew chief, and now seeing her kids out there uh, driving. So what is what is mom's take been on all this? Because I. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I got her permission to ask, you know, before I even talked to your dad, I got the blessing from your mom because I didn't want to get in the, you know, get in the middle of something that um, wasn't going to be, uh, wasn't going to be good at, good at the household. So what kind of, uh, what kind of advice and what kind of, uh, you know, I know your mom's happy for you guys and proud of you either way, but uh, what is, uh, what has she said to you the last couple of weeks? Um, well, to start, she wasn't really all in. Like she, this whole safety aspect, she she was a mom about it. Like she was scared. But once me and my brothers started having some success and showing like that this could be what we do, and 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 seeing that we could be successful in it and how bad we want it, she's been all all aboard, one hundred percent supportive. Give helped me a lot with a lot of my marketing stuff and all that. Um, she's she's been kind of the rock that keeps me going. She's She's always the first one in the car after a race. She's always the first one to give me a hug. She, she's all in. She, she just wants to see us succeed and wants to do anything she can to help us. So she's been great. 
Uh, I couldn't ask for anything better out of her. So, so where do we go from here, man? I mean, you, you've got an opportunity here and, and I've heard that, you know, that you're going to try to pursue rookie of the year, which is great. And I think you're going to get there, but Hermie wants championships. Can you deliver? So do I. Can you deliver? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, of look, course. I'm just trying to make Hermie happy. I, look, you not there, me. I, I go out there with the RV. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the director of fun. You I'm weren't the director there. Of Let's have a good time. Last week at the dinner at PSR. Yeah, because I wasn't invited. We were talking. Yes, you were. Oh, we were talking about um, goals and aspirations of the team and this and that and the other. And I think Phil Stefanelli may have said when he introduced Jonathan Cash, he said running for a championship. When he introduced Luke, he said running for rookie of the year. And Luke was quick to point out, I'm running for rookie of the year, but I'm also running for the championship. Oh, that's my guy right there. That's what I want to hear. I mean, so yeah, so what, no, are, I, what are your hopes, dreams, and goals here? I mean, this first year, look, you're coming to a Cadillac team, not a Yugo. Um, you, you've got two great owners that always want your success, are always going to say, you know, because we raised kids and, and we were kids once and played sports competitively, have competitive spirits. We want you to try your best, have fun, like my dad used to always say, but do your best. I'm a kind of guy that hates to lose more than I love to win. Hermie's the same way. How do you kind of balance all that? Understanding that this is your first time behind a real big rocket ship uh, to to accomplish not just being rookie of the year, but actually really moving to the front with all of these cars, with these older guys, and saying, I'm here to stay to establish myself for a championship. Well, first off, I think I need to earn everybody's respect. You know, I, I need to go out there. I'm, I'm not going to give anybody anything, but I need to race clean, race them hard, like how they want to be raced. But um, as far as goals for this season goes, I want to I want to win one race, two races, three races, and go for a championship. Right? I want but that too. <laughs> I, I want to set the bar high. I want to go for a championship and win a couple races. But I think rookie of the year, I'll be I'll be satisfied, maybe satisfied with it. I just I, I want to make something happen. I don't want to be like at the end of the year. Oh, he ran good. Like he was, you know, top tens, couple maybe a top five sprinkled in there, and he won rookie of the year. Like I I, I want to contend for wins and that's that's the main goal bring the car home in one piece not be hard on equipment that's a big thing but um that's music to hermes ears <laughs> we i say wreck them to win as, as we're talking <laughs> i think back now about how things happen for a reason and at the halfway point of the season last year saddler stanley racing would not have been in the position to bring on a 17 year old rookie to our organization no. we, we weren't good enough no and but i look at on many levels on many levels on many, but I, I look at i look at the turning point of our season and there were a lot of things behind the scenes that i won't talk about of course we had the team meeting and we talked about accountability so, and what so our Luke, let me tell you something were. about the team meeting so he's having the team I'm meeting. To make a good point i understand and i want you to pick that up but but here's where where the dumpster fire where we, we were not having a good season I pull over at one of Hermie Sadler's truck stops coming back from a court case. We're having that meeting and I'm next to the, his gas pumps and this car comes in and catches fire next to the gas pumps while the meeting's going on. I said, I said, this is a perfect example of what we're doing. And yet Hermie, <laughs> Hermie took over the meeting and said, we're going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to do this. We're not going to do this. We're going to, we're going to straighten up. And we won two of the last three races, but we really turned the season around. 
because of that leadership. So yeah, and I just else? don't want to be at a, I don't want to be at one of your gas stations talking to Luke Baldwin on a Zoom call <laughs> when a car catches fire and I got to run like 50, 50 yards away from so I don't burn up. So my point is, we had the meeting and talked about accountability, but at the same time, there was also a lot of work that went on behind the scenes. You know, Bobby Labonte is a Hall of Fame driver; his credentials speak for itself. But we actually made some fundamental changes to his car, the drivability of his car, changing some components and parts and pieces to maybe fit his driving style more. And you would think somebody with his kind of experience that, you know, that wouldn't be as important. But we did change a lot of the drive, you know, the components on his car. And then Phil and I and and Neil and even your dad was involved in some of the things that, so we started to find other areas and ways because we realized if we can't win with Bobby Labonte, we, we, we can never win with a, a rookie right off the bat. And so the second half of the season, and not just the fact that Bobby won two out of three, but, you know, I look back at Orange County now, the last race of the year, and we had three cars, which is no small feat to take three cars out of a shop to a racetrack and they all qualified within a half a tenth of each other with three different drivers. And I, and I said, you know what, now our cars and our preparation and our parts and pieces, we, we've come a long way and putting cars under uh, our drivers that give us a chance to do that. And so, you know, if we, this, this opportunity wouldn't have been available in June or July, this came about because of, you know, different, life plans and things going on with, with Bobby and, you know, in, in the elevation of our race team and the, and the uh, performance of them and, and all that. And I just think the way this whole thing came together, including with Neil, uh, and you, um, I'm excited about, uh, what the, you know, what the future holds for this year and look forward to, to seeing you on the track. And I know you're anxious to get after it too. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, you guys have obviously established, especially in the back half of the season and even season before that, that you guys are, you're, you're going to bring a race winning race car to the track every weekend. And so I, I think that's, that means no excuses for me. I have to do my job. You guys are doing yours. Neil and Phil, and Pia, all the guys on the crew are doing their job. And, and uh, I think it's just all on me now. I'm going to have to pull my weight. And then, um, yeah. I th- I yeah. Think- you better young man. <laughs> no, we're excited to watch you and, and and you got a great teammate in Jonathan Cash. He ran what five, six races for us. He was always uh vaulting to the front, very good driver, very quiet, quiet hands, worked the race car perfectly. I'm that's a teammate that you're gonna very I very much I think pair with that will bring success. What I wanna know though is, man, you have the opportunity now to have a teammate who's a Hall of Famer in NASCAR, not just your dad. But Bobby Labonte, he's got some other opportunities. We're going to talk about those when those arise. It's not like we're kicking him to the curb, but he's going to be involved in in four or five smart races and some of our uh, wheeling races as well. What what's it mean to a seventeen year old guy that he can be a teammate with a NASCAR Hall of Famer like Bobby Labonte? It's it's surreal. Like I remember my first time meeting Bobby at Florence. I think it was two years ago. And my dad introduced me to him, and I was like, hey, how are you? I did the same thing. And I was like, <laughs> when I, met him. I was like, oh, my God, like, like, what was I doing? And now that he's, like, my teammate, it's pretty cool. I'm definitely going to lean on him and, and 
I'll, I'll definitely learn a lot from him. But I remember playing with die casts in my room and, and having that 32 Bobby Labonte car. Obviously, I didn't get to see when he was in his prime, but that 32 Bobby Labonte car, and I was commentating my races. It's it's hard to believe that I would be that that I I was saying names that I'd be racing against or with uh, in the future. So it, it's definitely a really cool deal, and I'm I'm excited for it. All right, so I got two more questions because you know I'm I'm just full of information right now or, or things I want to know from you, Luke. Take I'm it. Really Take excited. It. So where do you see your dad in all this? I I always thought when Luke Baldwin's joins the team. You know, it's are are we running? What's the number? Seven NY? Are we going to run that? Or seven no? VA. Seven V. Well, look at you. Seven, seven VA, VA and Jonathan Cash is sixteen VA because Which you said you wanted number. my old number I back want on your the old trip. Number. That's exactly right. So we did all. So that. where do you where do you see? Because you know, it's like Dad, stop, leave me alone. Um, where do you see him in the team? Because we would take every bit of advice from him. We would take him in any capacity that he's willing to do. Where do you see him fitting in? With this new relationship with Sadler Stanley Racing and Luke Baldwin driving the seven VA, uh, whenever he's at the track, he's definitely going to be involved. He he can't stand standing on the sidelines and just watching it happen. <laughs> that, that is clear. Um, I I mean he's he can do whatever he wants in my eyes. It's all up to him and you guys. But like, I I obviously I trust him to do whatever he feels is necessary and. And I would love to see him, you know, get in the mix a, l- a little bit. Not saying that you guys don't have it figured out because you obviously do, but I'd love, I'd love to see him involved as much as he possibly can. Obviously, he's got a lot of stuff with Rick Ware Racing going on, so he can't always be there. But I think, I think he'll be involved on the weekends, and okay. and he'll have a lot of conversations with you guys and Neil and Phil about it. So and, let me and just that's say, welcome, even, even yeah. if he told you right now. Look, I'm going to be hands-off, and I'm going to let those guys handle it. Once you Not get to chance. Florence the first weekend, I guarantee you he'll be in, under the engine compartment, under the car, in the car, everything he can do, because I know he has other interests in the in this series and all that, but uh, we all, I think that's one thing we can all say, Bill and I, everybody at Pacematic, and I think Bill will concur with this as well, all the people at Pacematic, the fact that we're giving – a young driver like you, a a your first opportunity. We're hoping, you know, fifteen years from now, we can look back and say, "Hey, look where you started." You know, with us, and then Jonathan Cash, as I said at the meeting last week, the the dinner, a journeyman driver that has just put his own personal, you know, uh, blood, sweat, tears, and has never had the finances to do anything and get everything he needed. And that's really what Pacematic does in their everyday life. They support the small guy, the little guy, and create opportunities for for people to, you know, live the American dream. And so to, to everybody at Pacematic is really excited yep. uh, to see you and Jonathan, you know, racing together. And, you know, uh, this whole thing, Tommy's involvement, Phil Stefanelli, Neil Cantor, Everybody at the shop, you know, um, and I did have conversations with crew guys as well, and you got a 100% endorsement from everybody in the shop uh, that they wanted to see you in the car, and I think that says a lot about you and your family and and, uh, the fact that, you know, I think you'll have the team, you know, there's going to be ups and downs and struggles and uh, at times and all that, but I don't, don't, with this group we've got this year, I don't have to worry about everybody not giving – 
110% and being on the same page. And I, I, I think as Why a driver. Why did you have that before? I, sure. You, oh, yeah. Yeah. You, if you race long enough, you're going to have that. Well, if you race long well, look, enough, you're Is your dad doing okay? Is he doing great? He's yeah, he's doing great. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's I, a pain in the ass in the shop already. All right. <laughs> all right. That, now, I said when we interviewed him uh, before he left for a little while, I said cancer has no chance against this guy. And he just proved it. And what an inspiration. I, I, as a son, went through a fight with cancer with my father for many, many years. And, and so I understand what you've been through. But there's nothing better than the exhilaration of knowing that you're on top of that. And that should be great motivation, not just for how you race, because sure. nobody, nobody goes through something like that without coming out a better person. But as a son, you see how it really makes a difference in your mindset. And we don't take our, our dads for granted. So what I really want to see, and I know you will, will treat it this way, is, is just an incredible, exhilarating, bonding moment. And we want to be a part of that with you and your father now that we go to the next chapter in your life and his life and with Sadler Stanley Racing. I mean, I'm excited as can be. I think everybody needs to come out to Smart Series Racing and see Luke Baldwin in the 7VA, 7VA, watching this Young River Championship. Hey, tell everybody before we let you go, Luke, we want people that are listening to this podcast to find out more about you. How can they, where can they find you on your social media platforms? Uh, my racing accounts are just Luke Baldwin Racing on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I've got like personal accounts just under Luke Baldwin on both of those as well, TikTok. And then, um, yeah, you friended on, uh, me on Facebook, man. I was really, yeah, happy. he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've made it now. And on Twitter, I think it's Luke Baldwin 7 and Y, but I'm not, I'm not using that as much. But yeah, I'm, re- I'm really excited for this year. I just, I can't thank you guys enough. Like, you guys are the rock behind it. And, uh, I, I think we'll have a really successful year, hopefully better than Bill's doing in the General Assembly right <laughs> nice. now. Nice. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, this kid's on it. I, I, th- I think we're going to have a great year. And well, let me tell you, to, to cross it over into racing uh, terms, what right, Bill I, is experiencing really like is if you're right back there racing for 10th, everybody loves you. But if you're out there like Bill is trying to pass legislation like to win a race or to change people's lives, sometimes you have more opposition. So the, the moral of the story is, don't just sit back there in 10th because you want everybody to like you. If you got to ruffle some feathers and, and get up and, 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 and race hard up front, you know, even if you get a little pushback from time to time, that means you're doing your job. And Luke, I'm now inspired by you. I'm going to do better with some of my bills. <laughs> the ones that are left that are not done. Um, Glad I can do my job. You, you, you are an inspiration, man. We're looking forward Apparently to that. Apparently he's got a little sense of humor too. Look he, forward to that. And I love it. Yeah. When somebody gives me crap, I love, I, I, I like that. No, you don't. This is great. No, you don't. <laughs> okay, so when a young person does, oh yeah, yeah, it's training them how to yeah. talk smack. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm all about it. Yeah. Well, Luke, we appreciate the time, and uh, excited to work with you this year. Tell your mom and dad we said hello, and Florence will be here before we know it in South you know, Boston on March 24th. March 24th, South Boston. That's going to be the a entire big race. King of the series. Modified Smart Tour, South Boston. Right after a, a, a two weeks after we get out of session here, two weeks before we go back in. And I think big things are going to happen there. And I'm thinking big things are going to happen for Luke Baldwin. Do on you that think, racetrack. who do we think is going to, do you think Luke's going to pass more cars this year or are you going to pass more bills this year? What's going to be uh, the higher number? That's just cruel. Luke is going to pass more cars. <laughs> okay. I'm going to set more, the bar high. A lot more cars. 
You're gonna have to pass a lot of bills. Because <laughs> right now I'm I'm pulling into the pits. Oh, you said yeah, I'm smoking. You got a flat. I'm smoking. Oh yeah, my right rear is all done up. Uh, you know. Throttles hung. Yeah, yeah. Not even Throttle the throttle. I, I never got a chance to get up to speed around here. But Luke, man, we're so excited for you, man. We're we're excited that you're joining the team. Um, this is a part of what Hermes' dream was from the very beginning. I think you are a perfect person to take that forward, and we're just excited to watch you race and and we want every single person that lives listens to this podcast there's so many of you come out to these smart series races come see luke baldwin run come see him run for rookie of the year but our championship he's got the attitude he's got the smarts he's got the genes and it'll be fun to watch every day that is something to root for man you know not some guy wrecking somebody in the back from florida we got a guy that's actually going to do this now luke are you down in florida you going to be running any of those races down there uh i'm so Auburndale Speedway is having three races, and then New Smyrna is having three races in the 602 Crate Modified. So I'm going to be running all six of those. Get as many laps as you can. Get as many laps (laughs) as you can. Luke, thanks again. Good luck. We'll see you in a couple weeks. And ready to take a short break? Yeah, yeah. But give my best to your mom and dad. Uh, God bless you. And and thank your mother for allowing this to happen. We're going to have a great time at Sadler Stanley Racing this year. I cannot wait. This is more exciting than anything else we've ever done. This is Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. Powered by Pacematic, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, folks. This is Hermie Sadler. Thanks for listening to our all-new podcast, Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I hope you are enjoying the show as much as Senator Stanley and I enjoy bringing it to you. Whether you're a family traveling together or a truck driver hauling freight up and down the highway, I hope you will take the time to visit one of our Sadler Travel Plaza locations in Virginia and North Carolina. Sadler Travel Plaza locations are licensed dealer locations for pilot travel centers. And we also carry Shell Motiva Petroleum products for our four-wheel friends. We pride ourselves on providing one-stop shopping for service, food, and entertainment. Our food options include Five Guys Burgers and Fries, Quiznos, Dairy Queen, Hermie Sadler's Faux Show Bar and Grill, Victory Lane Restaurant, Hunt Brothers Pizza, Dunkin' Donuts, and much, much more. Our locations include Sadler Travel Plaza in South Hill, located off I-85 at exit 12. The Sadler Travel Plaza of Emporia, which is conveniently located on exit 11B off I-95. And Sadler Travel Plaza on Highway 58 in Suffolk. We also have our North Carolina location, Sadler Travel Plaza in Dunn, North Carolina, That's exit 75 off I-95. We appreciate all of our customers. And Bill and I appreciate you listening to Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. 
Hey, this is Bill Stanley, Hermie Sadler's sidekick on this podcast. When I'm not in Richmond at the Capitol or doing this podcast, my real job for the past 27 years is as a trial attorney with the Stanley Law Group. Here at the Stanley Law Group, we represent our clients in every courthouse in the Commonwealth. No problem is too small for us to solve. No case is too big for us to win. Whether it's criminal charges, traffic offenses, civil disputes, litigation matters of any sort, we handle it all. We make sure that we treat every client like family because they are to us. Your problem is our problem. Your success is our success because we hate to lose more than we love to win. And believe me, we win a lot. Don't believe me? Go ask Hermie. I'm his favorite lawyer, and he hates lawyers. So give us a call at 540-721-6028 and let us help you. Or visit our website at www.vastanleylawgroup.com. That's www.vastanleylawgroup.com. At the Stanley Law Group, we'll make sure we're the lawyers that you swear by and not at. And we're back. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley. Got my butt kicked today, but I'm still leading right. And I'm Hermie Sadler, turning left, leaning right, and turning left with Sadler in the Senator. Powered by Pace Matic. Enjoyed having Luke Baldwin on. Man, what a young good man. Good kid, good family, wow. good personality. So focused. So focused. And I hope you feel the same. Feels good to be given a kid like that his first big-time opportunity in stock car racing. And I, th- I think he's going to really make something of it. And that's that, so. And that, you know, opportunities for a 17-year-old are sometimes yeah. overlooked or, or they don't appreciate it. That's not him. He's ready. I think he's ready to step up. And, and bringing on his dad, Tommy Baldwin, into our team, I think is an add-on. It's an added value thing. I'm really excited about what he's doing. And after listening to him in that, in that interview, which I think everybody should listen to, it's inspirational as a parent and what you can do to get your kids motivated, even at an early age, to do something, even if it's racing or STEM or sports or, or you know, going to college and being something that they want to be. He's inspirational and especially has a great dad leading him yeah. down that pathway. Looking forward to it. So, so now to the good news. So, so, <laughs> so we're leaning right and turning left. We turn left, which is, you know, something we haven't done since we started the general assembly session. We're going to have an announcement next week. Uh, our sponsors, uh, we've been in negotiation. I think we're going to have a positive statement to make that this podcast is going to go on for at least another year. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on you going to be able to put up with me another year. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. You're my huckleberry. <laughs> sure. Uh, listen, it's what we do when we talk on the phone. Yeah. So we're just it's a great recording platform. It. Yeah. And and I think what we're doing with with talking about racing, especially short tracks in, in, in our areas, talking about wrestling, talking about politics, talking about skill games, these are important issues. And and that's why we've garnered such a big audience in what we're doing. And so when we when we lean right now, I want to keep you up to date on what's going on in the General Assembly session. A lot of people don't care. A lot of people, you know, are living their lives and they don't understand what's going on here in the General Assembly session for 60 days, which actually every bill that's considered affects their lives. And what we're seeing right now with a majority House and majority Senate, barely 5149 in the House, 2119, as we've said, in the Senate, we're seeing bills come out where, you know, I was making a joke in, in one of our committees. They finally killed a bill this week that was sponsored by a Democrat. They've passed every Democrat bill, every kind of, you know, I would say kind of out of the norm bill uh, in the in the Senate committees that we're having as we consider those bills to bring them to the floor, send them over to the House. And they've killed plenty of our stuff. And and, and I got to say that the Republicans have not been filing on the Senate side, radical, conservative, 
you know, way out there kind of stuff, partisan stuff. We're trying to find answers for Virginia, but if it has an R next to its name or the governor might have sponsored it or the attorney general, then they're just killing it willy-nilly. When it comes to their bills, they're letting them all go. And I think what you're going to see is, like I said before, Governor Youngkin is going to need more than one veto pen because he's going to run out of ink. And these are the bills we've had. And you and I talked about this during George Floyd's summer when we came here. We were here for 85 days. When Northam, the House, and the Senate were all Democrat, you know, it was like a jewelry store smash and grab in politics. I mean, they, they popped the top and they got as many bills as they could passed, things that, that, that quantifiably changed Virginia. There's not about us where we're trying to pull that stuff back. We're just trying to deal with what they've laid on the table for us. And what we're seeing is there is no stopping them. Nothing is good enough. They're never satiated. There's, there's never when their hunger is, is stopped, when a tax can't be raised, or, I like or when, I like second when, amendment rights can't be, can't be made even worse. I say this facetiously, but when you, I've watched some of these committees on things that, that I'm familiar with or care about, you know, all the committees are Democratic-led, Democratic majorities and all these committees. And they and lopsided. Lopsided. And they sometimes say things or make comments to make you think, oh, they get it. They're compassionate about your side. And then a motion, second, kill it, boom. Yeah, yeah, you know, because yeah, they know the track. votes are there. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. So every once in a while, depending on if they like you or not, they'll give you a nice little <laughs> comment or give you one little glimmer of hope. And then they, when it comes down to the, Nut crunching time, you know. The, you just, <laughs> There's a lot it's of a, it's a numbers crunched. game. It's yeah. a numbers game. Well, and and their agenda is going to come out, but they, but see, here's the thing: we know we're in the minority as Republicans. We have a very good leader in Ryan McDougal. You know Ryan very well, and I, I think Ryan's been great this season. He has done an amazing job. So we've really kind of uh, been unified in trying to put forth bills that are actually going to change people's lives in the Commonwealth of Virginia, less partisan more creative. I thought, you know, for a while, it used to be when I first started as a senator, I believe one thing, Democrats believe another. We both had one goal in mind, which was what was best for Virginia. We just believe there was different ways to accomplish it. Now, those things have gone, instead of being congruent, like moving towards the center and moving towards a resolution, we're seeing things just go off the rail. And and we're seeing how that, how that goes through. Now, today, just got back, I'm still in my suit. As we're talking right now, came off the floor, came out of the committee meetings, came right here so we could uh, do this podcast. My bills, just common sense bills, not partisan bills, are just being killed left and right. And I don't know if it's because of me or I said it was something I said, but but they're doing that. But they're also starting to kill some of the the Democrat bills in the in the finance committee as well. And so we've seen a lot of losses, a lot of bloods being leaded right now. And as I think the Democrats are seeing now, they, they, they need to kind of clear the field of some of the bills that got out of committee and they, they are sent to, to small subcommittees in finance where you, you don't understand why you're there, but all of a sudden your bill gets killed. And I think that's probably what Louise Lucas has to do as the gatekeeper. And she's handling it that way. And, and it's bipartisan. She's killing bipartisan bills. I mean, not bipartisan bills, but Democrat bills and Republican bills. And so today was a little bit of bloodletting uh, on the 13th floor in a committee room where even, even I felt like Louise looked at me and said, yeah, I really don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. And so we're seeing that now. And I think that's going to create some bad blood. 
I think I think Democrats, especially Democrat senators who've not experienced that, where they kind of, you know, they kind of clear the field a little bit, um, they're gonna have their noses out of joint. How the Democrats handle that is going to be interesting. How the Republicans are gonna handle it, well, we we're used to it because we're we're not in the majority. We're in the minority. And so I lost some very good bills today that I thought were pretty good. One of those bills we talked about earlier, hinting to it, was you and I sat down together because if you were a senator, you and I had pledged that we were going to do everything we could for uh, children with special needs in our public school systems, empowering parents, trying to do uh, things that have never been thought of before. The bill I created, which we call Haley's Law, was thinking outside the box, which was empowering parents with credentials and certifications in a- APA, ABA, ABA, and which applied is, behavioral analysis, which is used in not all schools, but in some schools. Yeah, creating a pilot program that would have allowed parents of special needs children to become certified at no cost as a as a technician in that the 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 child's teacher and and the people that they have hired would have had those certifications above that but to create a collaborative effort that would have allowed when, when the child is taught under these principles and guided under these principles, when they go home, that that teaching is consistent, that there's a homogeny between parents and teachers in a way that would have been consistent because, you know, what I've learned with special needs children, especially when, when we've been talking about those on the autism spectrum, consistency, you always say over and over is the way. And Mandy uh, with Calhoun, yeah, yeah, Mandy Calhoun. We talked about this in an earlier podcast, which you can always go back to our library. We have an amazing podcast where we sat down and talked, had an honor, honest conversation with your wife, mm-hmm. Mandy Calhoun, about what do we do, what what you go through as a parent, and what we can do. We crafted a bill that I thought would get us there, to allow teachers to respect parents and parents to respect teachers, so they understood they could speak the same language and work like puzzle pieces rather mm-hmm. than conflicting. Well, guess what I found today. They can't agree right now. Right. Teachers and parents were uniformed that they did not want to work together, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. And they used everything they possibly could. And I just threw my hands up today, and this was Haley's Law, and said, we'll come back next year. So I asked the committee to carry the bill over for the year. But I was kind of disappointed. Yeah. And, and I've never, you know, of all the bills, I do workforce development, I do criminal defense, I do, you know, and, and protection of constitutional rights. Here was a bill I thought that really could change the dynamic. We talked about it. We went over it. And yet both sides weren't happy with it. And it just kind of blew me away. I mean, you usually don't. You, you file a bill. You write a bill. And we write our own bills. We write yeah, So y'all were really ne- never really even an opportunity, had an opportunity to get it to the legislators. No. In fact, when I was getting ready to present the bill. Which is a bad, yeah. it sets a bad tone. For the for the fight, yeah. For the industry, yeah. for what you're trying to fight for, neither one of them was willing on either side to come together and say, yeah. "Hey, man, here's how we make it work." Mm-hmm. I let either side say, "Okay, look at the bill. What do you suggest?" Well, by the time either side suggested what they suggested, there was nothing left in my bill. Yeah, they wanted to have. Well, let's just have a work group. Well, I'm not a work group guy. Right. I want solving problems. Mm-hmm. This was a pilot program. Yeah. Let's see if it works. Let's go into a school that has has the you know ABA. Let, let's get in there and say, there's some parents that are willing to take the courses online, be certified as a technician, basically an assistant to somebody who has the ABA certification, mm-hmm. and then work together, create some collaboration. 
Well, the teachers believed that we don't want the parents in our room. And the parents were, well, we don't want to work with the teachers. And that, I think, is the, the failing problem that we have right now. You know? And, and when we talk about a work group, so you take a bill that says, uh, you will be certified, and then you're going to work with the teachers. Well, the teachers, like in my bill, said that they could come in the classroom and help. Well, you can't do that with your own kid. And we don't want you in the classroom. And then, and then the parents were like, well, I'm going to have to work for the teachers. A work group, what they tried to amend this bill to do was saying, well, then, you know, you're going to basically turn your bill into uh, stakeholders will come to every side and see if they can come together. Work groups are aspirational. They're for weak legislators. You get, you get stakeholders, lobbyists, special interests to reduce your bill to a, a, a stakeholder meeting, a work group. Well, then you're just passing something to put on a brochure that and acts like you did something. That's not what I'm here for. Yeah. And that's what this became. And I just walked in and said, okay, we're, we're going to carry this over for the year. We're going we're gonna to come back and look at this. But I think you and I, Hermie, are going to sit down and we're going to say, how do, we, how, do we, how do we solve more than one problem? Hey, look, and just so you know. And make them sit at the table together and say, it is in our best interest to make this actually work. So you say, why is this important? You know, I have a child with autism. She, from the age of two until she was nine or 10, was nonverbal. She was um, violent. She was non-sociable. All the things you can imagine. We put her on a path. At the Faison School here in Richmond, she, you know, we had the ability and the resources to send Haley to the Faison School in Richmond for these ABA and other therapies. And then we paid an outside therapist out of my pocket to when Haley got home from school to do another two or three hours to review and hammer home a second time in the day, what she, learned at the what she learned at the school. And that's what we were trying to do here. And so that, that you and I worked yeah. on and tried to get together. But the parent would be because most parents can't afford a, her- have, a therapist. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. because of your hard work, yeah. you had that ability to, to bring in those resources and pay for those. Many parents do. Mm-hmm. They have IEPs, you know, and they, and then they send their kids to school. And, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it right now, the schools put them in a dang room. Yeah. And most of these babysit schools don't have, don't have the ABA. They babysit them. And so I'm trying to find a solution. A big problem with schools. But I ran into a brick wall on both sides. A big problem with schools, too. And they always say it comes back to money and funding. But if you had a kid with an IEP that was scheduled to get X amount of speech therapy or occupational therapy in the school setting, if the therapist was sick or didn't show up, only about 10% of the time are these sessions made up properly. What does that mean? If, what, what, so, if let's just say, so if, if they're Haley, not there, they're not, they're not, they, they're not rescheduling. Up. They're not oh. catching them up. Oh, wow. They're not catching them up because, because they don't have a second, third, or fourth therapist on the staff. And they have one, they don't two. have a parent at home that can pick up the slack right. on a day that the school couldn't provide. The therapist. And that's what my bill, bill number 96, tried to solve. Based on the conversations with you yeah. and Mandy Calhoun. Yep. And I thought it was pretty, I thought we were going to go some places with it. What I found was, and it's very disappointing, not the first time, but not often, that the school and the parents, they're just not there yet. They're not willing to work together. 
Because, you know, you and I talked about this when we had Mandy on with your wife, that there is always a conflict. And that's what I'm trying to eliminate. And that's where I actually got the idea was from that conversation. And they are in conflict. We've got to stop that conflict. It's a child. The child suffers. If the child doesn't have a consistency, uh, goes through that kind of therapeutic uh, education, that the parent is not ready when they come home to create that consistency, keep it going, then that hurts the child. If, if, the, if the school is unwilling to engage the parent who has that knowledge, I think they're afraid, the schools that do this are afraid to let parents have that kind of knowledge. They want, they want the secret sauce recipe. They don't want to share it with the parent. And this is why we're having a problem when it comes to special needs and autistic children. We need to solve this problem. Government can't make it better, but we can create the arena where they can make it better if they collaborate, and they're unwilling to do it right now. Well, you talk about conflict, which is the problem. Another big part of this issue is accountability. If a child does not progress at a way that the family thinks they should progress, they want to blame the school, the teachers. If the teachers want to blame the parents. Yeah. No, that's what, that's what it's So nobody wants to take accountability for setting the bar and, but you and I just said it, but you know, kind of off the air before we started, they, you got adults acting like kids. Yeah. And the problem is kids like Haley, who's now, you know, 25 years old, Right, you know the ones that are three, four, and five year olds that that IEP and attaining those goals and and an IEP is what so the individualized education program which you plan, have between a parent and the public school the public school system which is an agreement which calls for basically. you know this amount of classroom work this amount of speech therapy this amount of occupational therapy um, and it's catered towards the needs of individual each individual child because. Right. Of all the family. Which you would think would be the, the starting point for collaboration. Yeah. But I think it's actually, because usually that's contentious, that it's the part of where it separates. And that's wrong. And that's what we try to correct in this bill today. And guess what? I saw both sides are still far apart. Sure. Well, that's until unfortunate. We get there, until we get there, this is an uphill battle. I didn't realize that this was so hard. Well, you know, I say this, this, and I know this is one. This is a big thing with you, and that's why I, I it's say a big this thing with me. It is hard. It is not working. I say this respectfully, Together but well, you know, we were able. We actually had to pull Haley out of the public school system, and I sent her over here to Richmond to the Facing School for Autism. Drove her for, up there every day. Every day, my wife drove her every day. So we had, and I don't mind saying, I, I say it because people need a reality check. We took. My daughter out of school, public school, sent her to the facing school. This was 2004, five, six, right in there. $80,000 a year. Which most people don't. Do not have. Plus, I had to pay an, a therapist, after school therapist, to come in once Haley got back home from driving to Richmond. She gets about an hour break. Then we gave her two or three more hours at home. So, Which is what this bill tried to accomplish. So all in. But using the parent as the center point. Here's the rather thing. Rather than a therapist at cost effective measure. In 2005, all in, I was spending out of pocket a minimum of $100,000 a year 
to provide what we thought my special needs child needed to give her the best chance to be a productive citizen and lead a productive life and all these other things. Look at her now. So. I mean, she's amazing. I took my child out and did for her what I needed to do because I had the resources to do it. The other nine out of 10 kids get lost in the system. Yeah. Because they don't, the school doesn't have the resources or the ability to uphold their responsibilities of an IEP. And the parents are not taught or not. Who's there to teach the parent of a public school child who's, Total household income is $15,000. Well, like in my area, you've got a family for living off $40,000. Yeah. They don't have they the do not have ability it. that you have. It's stuck. But for a free for a free class to certify them as a, as a technician, an assistant, then they can speak the lingo of the teacher. Yeah. They can collaborate. They were worried that they might come into the class and try to do what they're going to do. What, what, what we were actually trying to do was educate the, the teacher to understand that the parent has the same kind of education. I think they were threatened by that as well. Yeah. It is so sad. We are not getting to the end result that we want. And there's Miss Haley. Having her, no, she can, no, she can talk. She's okay. But, but again, again, she's a success story because of your resources. Yeah. Well, what we're trying to do is give resources and empower parents and then have the teacher the, in the classroom, realize that this is actually a tool that they can maximize. I wake, and they were unwilling to work together. I wake and up. I'm so sad. By I that. wake up every day asking myself, what else could we have done? Because of all the For progress what? we made with Haley. I mean, she's never going to leave home. She's never going to drive a car. She's never going to get married. You, you have those aspirations for your daughter, just okay. like I have for my other two. But well, we well, did, I wish mine didn't drive a car. We did all we could do, you know, for her to get her where she's at. And I have, I just get heartbroken know, about all the ones of that have of nothing. Problems. Yeah. They can't do anything. No. They're stuck in the system. And the parents don't have the them. tools to yeah. cope with that. You know, look, you know, we are very, we're very blessed that we have our children where they are right now and that they're raised in that way, that, that we don't have those challenges. Some of us, I mean, my wife and I would love to have a kid that would be with us for the rest of our lives. But at the same time, that's maybe not the best thing for the child. Right. But you've maximized what her returns are. Mm -hmm. We're we're seeing a lot of these a lot of these children that are on the autism spectrum are not even getting to that point. Yeah. Because there's no collaboration between yeah. the teacher, the school, and the parent. Rather, it's a competition. It's butting heads, and I saw it. To the point where I said, all right, I'm raising my hands. I'll carry the bill over for a year. I'll come back and do this next year. Yeah. It's sad because there's another year. There's another year where kids can't benefit from collaboration between teachers and parents, which I thought was a simple bill that educated parents and would make, would make the teacher respect the parent more because the parent was on a level where they yeah. understood what the teacher was trying to do. Man, this is a problem. We've got to solve it. Hey, We've got to solve it next year. You know, we need to move on, I know, but I'll give you a whole nother atmosphere of problems that are going to be created by the lack of action on this. I don't have the, the statistics, but raising a special needs child 
is brutal on marriages. Brutal. Really? So I personally know a more than two handfuls of parents that are separated, divorced, whatever, because in large part to it is a it is a strain. It is a it's gotta be all day, every day yeah. battle. And it's not just the financial well, and the child's first in the yeah. family unit, right? Rather than the relationship between yeah. the husband and wife. But for, for some, for some people, especially, I I cannot imagine how I would have felt back in two thousand five if I did not have the finances to be able to take Haley and put her where we thought at the time was the place for her to be. If back in two thousand five, which I yeah, I was racing full time. I was doing TV full time. I was making money, but if I were making you know seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a year in two thousand five, or even fifty, or even fifty, could not I could not did. have done. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens to parents. They feel like they are letting their kids down, and then that starts a a, a process of you know people wanting to get away and feeling like they're failing their kids and yeah. your marriage is your marriage. So it's, it's a whole, and it just seems so simple. Like you said, yeah. Hey, we're going to provide a framework who needs to work together any more than the parent and the teacher. Nobody, yeah. but they have to have, they're going to have to tear that wall down uh, for the betterment of and, the kids. And for us, this is why we talk about this. This is what the general assembly is. It's kind of a meat grinder, but at the same time you bring a new idea and it's so shocking to the stakeholders that nobody likes it. At the same time, each one of them needs it. And and we won't give up on this. I think, and I think what you and I need to do is say, okay, we're learning a lot. I, I, this fleshed out what the problems are between the two, between the parents and the teachers and the school systems. Now we need to come back next year. And I'm dedicated for that, that we're going to bring not just this bill, but some real hard solutions where these two entities need to come together because it's the child that matters and their future that is most important. And this is mainstream now. When Haley was diagnosed in 2002, the statistics said one in every 500 kids were diagnosed with autism. As we're talking right now in 2024, it's one in every 30. Good one Lord. in 30. How is that happening? One in 30. How is that happening? But, you know, that's an overload. Look, it's public schools, they got their money for certain things. They don't have the capacity to do this. We need to have a collaborative effort. And right now, I think the school systems are looking at parents going, you're trying to ban books. You're trying to be involved in the school system and the school boards. You're trying to make sure that, you know, indoctrination doesn't happen. And so we, have a, we don't have a collaborative atmosphere. We have a competitive atmosphere. We have headbutting going on. We need to break that. We need to break that that wall down, and we're going to do it next year. You and me, Hermie. I'm we're ready. Do it. We're, we're not going to. We're not going to come with one bill. We're going to come with five, because this was an eye-opening experience for a guy that's been here 14 years. I've never seen this in my life. Nobody. One one person sent me an email that was supportive. Thank you for this. Everybody else came in, and it was all about their cat boxes mm-hmm. where they pooped. It was not about collaboration or let's make this work. And even when I said to the parents' representatives, go get me something, they were like, let's have some weak-ass study group, which you know they would not come and meet in the same room, and I'm not a study group guy. So, so that's what happened to, to Haley's Law, but we're going to come back with a Haley's package. 
we're going to have a package of laws that are going to going to change. And just to give you another indication of what's going on in Crazy Town here in Richmond, are we going to get some good news now? No, this is not good news. <laughs> are we going to get the Democrats? Are can we control? talk about the one bill that you've gotten <laughs> reported? This I don't even know which one that is. <laughs> What we're going to talk about right now is gun bill day in the courts of justice. We had now remember the moms demanding action, the every town people come in and they come and talk to us. And, and sometimes when we're in the majority, we, we kill gun control bills that re, you know, that restrict your second amendment rights. Now that the Democrats are in charge, now they're emboldened and we're starting to see the true nature of who they are. So they have all these gun control bills. You can't have a loaded gun in your house. You can't put a gun. You can't have a gun in your house unless it's locked up. And if you are, you're going to be charged with a crime. And you can't stop at a rest stop with a gun in your car because then you're going to be charged with a crime. Every bill that the Democrats are creating right now in gun bill lobby day uh, that we have at, in the Courts of Justice Committee has been good guy with the gun, bad. Bad guy with a gun, good. Because we, you know what? He had a tough life. You know, he, we need to just allow him the ability of after, you know, major felony offense, using gun, putting it in a guy's head. We should sympathize with him. He's not that bad. He is not that bad. And you know what? Disparity and this and that. I mean, they come up there and they say this stuff. Well, look, this week we had one common sense bill that I thought everybody would get behind. A Republican, Danny Diggs, Bill DeSef, two Republicans offered a bill. Danny Diggs, former sheriff, right? Yes, yes. They would have said, if you're a violent criminal and in your second offense with a gun, your first offense with a gun, you conceal or use a gun in a violent crime, then you should have a five to 10 year mandatory minimum. That is, bad guy with gun should be put away. One would think this would be great, right? Second offense. Second offense, not a first offense. Second offense. I mean, who can't love that? If you don't love guns... You shouldn't love guns with bad guys, especially bad guys who come back after being bad guy with gun first time, come back bad guy with gun second time. And so this bill offered a mandatory minimum. And so I want to, to share with you and, and our audience some of that committee, that committee debate, which showed the hypocrisy of these gun control nuts that want to take your Second Amendment right. But dagnabbit, if you're a criminal, and you're a real criminal, and you're a criminal again with a gun, we should have sympathy on you. I want to introduce now a, what the bill was uh, from Bill DeSteff. He introduces it here. Let's take it. Uh, Senate Bill 221 provides that a person who's guilty of a separate felony, if he carries about a person, uh, his person, any pistol, shotgun, rifle, or other firearm that's hidden from common observation while committing or attempting to commit, certain other felonies and we can go into the specific felonies we list them out in the bill um and that's the first part of the bill then the second part of the bill if you're caught concealing a weapon and you're committing that felony then the minimum increases from three to five years and then from five to ten years for a second and subsequent offense we oppose this bill we oppose mandatory minimum sentences as research has consistently found that they do not have an impact on violent crime or crime overall, and they can exacerbate disparities in the criminal legal system. It, it seems hypocritical to me that you're against mandatory minimums, 
For someone who gets convicted with concealment of a firearm or use of a firearm in a felony, that would in a second offense, not a first, a second offense, that would actually take them off the street so that they could not commit crimes, again, for at least five years. Can you explain how you balance what I think sounds hypocritical? It does sound counterintuitive on the surface. I understand that. because, And we are here in support of a number of other gun violence prevention measures. It really is the minimum mandatory sentencing aspect that we are in opposition to. Mr. Chairman. Senator Stanley. Uh, I'd, ask, uh, I'd ask the witness again. Why would you be against putting someone in jail for a long time for using a firearm, something that you're here to prevent the use, especially after the second time that they've done that. Why do they not deserve at least a minimum sentence of five years or more? There is already a minimum sentence in place today, and we just feel that it is something within the legal system that can exacerbate disparities and don't feel like it's the most effective measure at gun violence prevention. So what do you think about that? I mean, just, really? How hypocritical is that? I mean, I'm not surprised, but but But, but they I'm come sad. up here and preach to us that the Second Amendment doesn't mean anything. Right. You should not enjoy gun rights. You should not enjoy the Second Amendment and your right to possess a firearm. They don't want you to have a gun if you if you got to go take a leak at a rest stop. You're a criminal. If you leave it in your car and somebody breaks in, a criminal breaks in and steals a gun, you're a criminal. But when the criminal uses the gun in a felony, a violent felony, then let's not punish that guy. He had a hard life. You know, you know, he didn't get the education opportunities. DEI didn't work for these equity people. You've inclusion. already given them the benefit of the doubt the first time. Right. It's a second, second offense, yeah. which is a five to 10 year mandatory minimum. Mm-hmm. This guy has, this guy, because it's not usually women, this guy has proven himself to be a violent criminal who uses an illegal firearm. He didn't purchase it because he's a felon one time already. So he cannot possess it. They say, oh, don't be so hard on him. Let's be hard on you, Hermie, because you have firearms or you may have an AR-15. Right. You are the bad guy, not them. And so you heard that cross-examination and and they could not sustain it. And now let me tell you something. They got upset. How dare you? I mean, they were saying, how dare you question us? They were saying, we're not answering your question. You're being abusive to us. Well, after that exchange, which called out their hypocrisy, Senator Stewart basically said hypocrisy has a name and it's Democrats. Listen. And unfortunately, I think I have a sense of where this bill is going in front of this committee and it's, it, it's disheartening. Um, he brought a bill the other day to keep child molesters out of state parks and the bill was killed. And I think this committee is going to kill a bill today that essentially says you're a criminal if you stop at a rest area with your shotgun in the back of your truck. But their point was that certainty of punishment is the only thing that works. Well, a minimum mandatory is certainty of punishment. People know that if they commit a crime with a gun, if they murder someone, if they rape them, if they rob them, they're certain to get a minimum mandatory sentence. And I don't often say this, but I have to say today, the abject hypocrisy in this room is astounding to me. There, these groups that come in here day after day and oppose bill, I mean, support bills that target honest, 
law-abiding citizens, gun owners, would stand up and oppose a bill to hold a criminal accountable that uses a gun. It is truly astounding. It is truly astounding, but I'll tell you what it does. It absolutely illustrates what your true purpose is here, and that's to take guns away from honest people, and you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. God bless you, Richard Stewart. That's true. All the said, truth. Look, they've been pushing on us for so long that we just kind of sit back and, and take it and be silent. Richard Stewart stood up and said what we all think and know because it's the general hypocrisy. You know, the problem with our society right now is all that minority, you know, the minority of the mob rule minority has been telling us that we should accept the mutilation of children. We should not have firearms. They're bad. We should, we should not drive uh, gas powered cars. They're dominating us with what they think. But when you actually examine what they think and how they think it, and when you cut it up a little bit and then debate it, then it shows them that they are weak. Their arguments are not with merit. And ultimately, they end up just doing nothing more than screaming and screeching, which they did after this hearing, by the way, in the Courts of Justice Committee. I can't believe you guys are beating us up and this is not right, not fair. All we did was ask the right questions. You heard my cross-examination. Tell me how this is not hypocritical. You don't want a bad guy to go away forever who used a gun in a violent felony for the second, second time. time after he was first convicted. Tell me how that's wrong. Ah, you know, because it's disparate treatment. And, oh, wait a minute. Has nothing to do with guns, does it? It has everything to do with your liberal bullshit. Yeah, hypocrisy has a name, and its name is Liberal Democrats, and it was on show and on display at that hearing this week. And that's why we talk about it today. You know, a couple things that most reasonable people will say is number one, the second amendment is exactly that. It's the second amendment of the constitution of the United States of America. Not the eighth amendment, the second, second amendment. That's my constitutional right for us. Number one, number two, to, to your point, and to expound on that, there's an overall lack of teeth when it comes to accountability and prosecuting the people that actually commit the crimes. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, how are these guys to be sympathized? You know, so, so look, in their mind, you, with a firearm on your side, never broke a law, never had a speeding ticket. Bad guy. Don't come to our rest stops. You're elite. don't come to our don't come to our, our ABC stores because we have a no gun policy. We put the sticker on the door because that's going to stop the criminal. That stops the good guy. And I asked actually in that meeting, I said, you know, it was a, it was a, another bill by Danny Diggs that said um, you can, you know, of the exceptions to public property. If you stop at a rest stop in Virginia and you got a firearm on your on your person or in your car, you're not committing crime. No, no, no. And there was one kind of weirdo dude that said, I don't need a, a gun to take a pee. He said, hey, he said that. And I was like, and he was challenging me. And I'm not a hypocrite. And I'm like, okay. And I thought to myself, I didn't say this question, but I'm like, if you're peeing in the woods, you need that firearm because a bear might come and attack your ass. This is their hypocrisy. They don't understand. So it's bad guy with a gun 
on his second try, rapes somebody, may not use the gun in the rape, but has it concealed, should be a 10-year mandatory minimum for his second offense. No, we need to like him and have sympathy. We need to understand him, let him out on bond. But a guy like you, with the same scenario, but doesn't hurt somebody, possessing a firearm, you need to be convicted of a crime. You need to not have that gun. Where have we gone? The third seal of the apocalypse has been broken open. These guys are proving that our society has degraded to a point where the 14% that believe this are now running the country and attitude and everything else, and I'm tired of it. Those people, moms demand action, can, can suck it, okay? I'm tired of them. They're hypocritical bullshit artists, and they got, dis- they got exposed in this hearing, and Richard Stewart was exactly right. You should be ashamed of yourself, but they're not because they're, they're pumped with money from Soros and all those guys because they want to degrade individual rights and allow mob rule to take over where the government dictates what we do, not us. Remember, the Constitution was the protection of the people against the government and not the other way around. And this is BS. And they got exposed, and guess what they did? They got butthurt and went on social media, I can't believe they were so mean to us. And then they started saying in, in later bills, I will not answer a question. Then don't stand up and make testimony. That's what we saw. We finally cracked cracked that little exterior they had, that hard exterior. They could not stand up to the, to the actual cross-examination and the questioning, and they caved. And then they run, along, they run away like little scalded hogs and say, we're not being fair. We're not being fair because you're not being right. The whole system, to any reasonable person, is screwed up. I mean, if somebody is of the mental state a bad enough person or mentally sick enough to consider cr- killing somebody or using a firearm. Second offense. Second offense is certainly not going to be concerned about what the law is. Right, right. Do you anyway. think that sticker on the door that says we're a gun-free zone? You know, and I said that in the committee. I said, do you think that when we were talking about the, uh, uh, the, the rest stops, do you think the criminal is going, man, I'm going to go in, I'm going to rob people, I'm going to rob these truck drivers who are sleeping, I got my firearm. He walks in, he says, ooh, gun-free zone. Hold on, I need to take this back to my stolen car and put my stolen gun back in there, and I'll just have to do hand-to-hand combat. They don't think about this. Those stickers and those restrictions only apply to the law-abiding citizen because the law-abiding citizen sees that and says, I got my firearm. Oh, I can't bring it in. All right, I'll put it back in the car. And you leave them exposed. I even said, overland truck drivers, 40% suffer violent crimes, rape, robbery, at the hand of a gun, at rest stops. Are you leaving them exposed and and unprotected? They didn't care about that. These are the guys that actually bring your tofu and your soy to your friggin' market at Publix so you can buy it and be vegan. What the hell's wrong with you? Don't you want your soy products brought to your damn market? Well, then you better let that truck driver protect himself when some guy who goes, I don't care about this, no, no, no gun law. I'm going to stick my gun in his nose. They don't care. They don't care about moms demand action. They're criminals. They steal their guns. If they're having a second offense, they don't, they didn't learn the lesson the first time, you buttheads. What is wrong with you?
the fact of the matter is, what is I, wrong? As I just With said, you. as I just said, the bad people <laughs> couldn't care less. Hermes, the calm one here, couldn't there. care less about the law. But what is really the most disappointing thing of all of it is how they use this issue and the the whole conversation about guns and use it for political, in their mind, political gain. Well, look, when it, when it, I turn the TV on just about every night, mass murder, they ignore it. I turn the TV on just about every night and hear about mass shootings in places like Chicago and otherwise that are democratic run cities. And, you know, they don't want to talk about, and they're the ones in most cases that have the most strict, the strictest gun laws. Yeah. Of any of, of anyway, Washington D.C. Right now, right now we're 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 arguing about monument. It we're doesn't fit the narrative. About, we're arguing about capitals and the Wizards, two professional base, uh, uh, professional hockey and basketball teams coming over to Virginia. You know why they're coming over? Because the crime rate in Chinatown is so bad that they're losing fans that are getting their cars broken into and getting robbed or murdered or raped. So they're coming over into the safe area of Virginia. Scott Surville, who's the chairman of courts, at one point in time said, well, you know, part of the problem with this, with this, you know, with, with guns in cars is that people are coming from Virginia and leaving the guns in their cars in a parking garage. And then somebody breaks into the, because they know the guns are there and they break into their cars. And so the illegal people are. So who's the criminal? Who's the criminal? Well, well, doesn't that actually occur because Washington, D.C. defunds the police? I mean, that Virginians only feel safe and they know that D.C. does not allow one single gun. You cannot possess a gun. But guess what? Highest crime rate, highest murder rate. I mean, I was growing up there and it was highest murder rate ever. You can put all the anti-gun laws you want in effect. Criminals don't listen to them. What they know is that you've disarmed the honest guy so I have a better field of attack. I have more people I can go after. And so you're blaming the guy from Fairfax who wants to come see the Capitals, but is afraid of bringing his kids to Chinatown here where the, where the Capitals arena is. So he leaves his gun in the car. Some guy goes and breaks the window, steals his wallet, his computer, and oh, by the way, a gun. You're the criminal, not the guy that actually broke the window and stole your stuff. This is justice turned on its head. You know how we you- are going down a path we are not coming back from. And our Virginia General Assembly is helping that path get paved. You know how we put a bow on this? How? Remind everybody that elections have consequences. Yeah. And conservative people that care about the Constitution and their rights better start paying attention to what's going on and getting more involved in the process. And it's coming. And voting uh, because... We got a presidential election coming up. The bad people have got the power and control and authority to change the narrative in a way that fits what they want to uh, want people to think. And it's really, really disappointing well, and, and it's unsafe. All right. Conservative Republicans commit the crime to the time, get punished, have some mercy into trying to get you to change your ways, but commit the crime, do the time. If it's a mandatory minimum, I'm telling you, cause I'm a criminal defense lawyer. They know it. When they knew that the Virginia General Assembly uh, started bringing back the primary offenses to pull people over, like you know, if you had a, if you if you weren't, if your headlights weren't on, you could be pulled over for primary offenses, or something dangling from your rearview mirror, 
I mean, over and over. And when they knew that, then they, they are running wild. When they knew the mandatory minimums are gone, they're running wild. Look at the, look at the four guys in New York that beat up a cop on video, illegal aliens, knew they could do it, and got actually released after they brutally beat that cop. One of them gives the double bird as he's going out, and both have, all four have fled to California. Where are we? This is lawlessness. The criminals know that if they're, going to be, if they're going to get caught for stupidity, they're doing five or 10-year mandatory minimum, and it should be higher, then actually it acts as a deterrent. Not to our diversity, equity, inclusion liberals. He had a bad life. He lived in an inner city, which was run by Democrats. You know, they need a second chance so that they can commit the crime a second time. And when they commit it a second time, you know, there shouldn't be a mandatory minimum. And by the way, they should have a gun-free zone at the rest stops where foreign, you know, out-of-staters can stop and we'll just go rob them and the truckers because you know what? They had a hard life and economically it's not working. I mean, good God, this is stupid. It's got to stop. I'm a little worked up today. Elections have consequences. I got my bills killed today, so I'm a little worked up. But I'm telling you right now, we are on a path of no return. And when we do this, we degrade society, we degrade the family, we degrade the social structure. When we start rewarding the bad guy and punishing the good guy, like these gun bills proposed by Democrats here in the Commonwealth of Virginia happen, we Virginians, we Americans lose. And when we lose... We lose freedoms. When we lose freedoms, we lose society. When we lose society, we lose everything. And mob rules. And we are destined to fail. We are on a path that needs to change. And this is one indicator of what is in front of us. And as Americans, we have to stand up and say, enough. Enough. We're not perfect. But we're the best thing going in this world. And we're the only hope for freedom and liberty making things right for our children and for those that come after us because that's what we were left with that's the mantle that we have we're going to make it happen or we're going to fail and right now unfortunately as i go through this general assembly session not just because my bills got killed i think we're going to fail and i'm afraid let's end on that happy note <laughs> hermie hates when i call him like this and i and there are times when i call her like and he puts up with it. He needs a whoopee. I need a whoopee. You're right. We're a drink. I enjoyed the show. And I enjoy you. Buddy. We got we got to talk about. Drove the, to Richmond, came up here, so we, we got to we, we got to talk about the good and the bad, and, and the that's the purpose of this platform that Pacematic gives us is to get the truth out there to the people. Exactly. Right. And sometimes the truth hurts, and yeah, hurts hopefully tonight. people will start paying attention. My throat hurts. <laughs> I mean, so but but you know what? We're here to fight. Yep, we are. We're never going to give in. We're never going to give up. This is what we fight about. And you know what? Every single person that listens to this podcast, we have a lot of listeners. Stop being on the sidelines. Start working. Start fighting. Stand up. Let's reclaim, not make America great again kind of stuff. Let's reclaim the freedoms and liberties that so many men and women fought for and lost their lives for in wars before us to give us this opportunity. Let's not let a small minority dictate what is good for the majority of Americans and those in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Staley. Clearly, I'm a little upset, but I'm still leading right. And I'm Hermie Sadler. Thanks for listening. We appreciate Luke Baldwin yeah. being on. Appreciate our listeners and certainly appreciate Pacematic. This is Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler in the Senator, powered by Pacematic. <laughs>
I appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you. And we'll see you next week. God bless you all. Conrad Thompson with SaveWithConrad.com. You've heard me bragging on the podcast for years about helping people save money on their current house, but did you know that I can help you with your next house as well? That's right. We can get you into your next house with zero down. No money down loan programs are still available, and I know it sounds too good to be true, but we can do it for you. And by the way, home ownership is more affordable than you might think. We routinely turn renters into homeowners, and we hear back that their new house payment is more affordable than what they were paying in rent. Why would you keep doing that? Stop throwing your money away, paying for someone else's mortgage, and start building wealth for your family. And let my family help at SaveWithConrad.com. You don't need perfect credit to do this. We can improve credit scores down to the 500s, and it's worth mentioning, we never say no. We say not yet, but here's how. You need a game plan to buy a house, and that's where we come in at SaveWithConrad.com. We'll ask you, what down payment do you want to make? And zero is an acceptable answer. And what monthly payment do you want? And then it's time to go shopping. Find out how easy it is and how affordable it is to become a homeowner at SaveWithConrad.com.